Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. You've looked at a lot of economic history um, in your career, and I'm just wondering if you've ever seen anything like this from the perspective of the speed of the decline, the depth of the decline, and the breadth of the decline. Is this unprecedented from your perspective, even even throwing the Great Depression in there? I think it's completely unprecedented. I mean, again, what you had is an overnight forced decrease in production of uh, 35%. I cannot think of any episode in history going back centuries or millennia in which uh, something happened at that speed on that, on that uh, magnitude. I mean, you clearly have had periods in history when output would decrease by a whole lot, and I'm sure during the Black Plague and, and, and times like that, but nothing which happened you know, within a, a few weeks. So no, this is completely unprecedented. My sense, Olivier, is there's this idea out there that you can just kind of flip the switch on an economy. Uh, how do you think about that? I mean, once once we're ready to for people to go back to work, um, how quickly would things go back to normal? Um, and the longer we're the longer we're on lockdown, and the longer the economy is significantly below its potential, how will that affect the eventual recovery? So I think you can. Uh, flick the switch off very easily, and that's what we did. Uh, flicking it on is, is much, much, much harder, and that's basically what we'll just have to we'll just have to see. I think we're just going to to see what happens. You can host the best backyard barbecue when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Olivier Blanchard served as the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund from 2008 
2015. He has taught economics at both Harvard and MIT, and he has served as the president of the American Economic Association. Today, he is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. We just sat down with Olivier to talk about the economic implications of the coronavirus outbreak. Olivier, thank you very much for joining us on Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you with us. It's a pleasure. So, Olivier, this is this is the fourth episode in a row that we have done on the COVID-19 pandemic. The first was on the virus itself. The second was on the government's policy response with regard to health. The third was on the national security implications. And today with you, we're going to do the economics of all of this. So thank you very much. What I'd like to do is kind of break this into, into four big pieces, Olivier. The first is the economic impact. The second is policy response by governments. The third is how to think about the eventual recovery. And then the fourth is any thoughts that you might have about the long-term economic implications of all of this. But if we start with the economic impact, maybe the first question is, where was the U.S. and the global economies as we were going into this crisis? You know, were they strong? Were they weakening? How would you characterize where they were as we were going into this in those initial few weeks? So I think just before the crisis, the the feeling in general was that that was more or less uh, smooth sailing. There were no major uh, issues, uh, imbalances on the horizon. Uh, growth was not great because productivity growth is not great. But there was a sense that although the expansion had been lasting for a very long time, and the longest time in, in post-war uh, history, um, it could continue. There was no reason to think that the recession was coming or anything was coming. So this was really uh, where we were when the virus appeared. So how would, how would you describe to a non-economist, Olivier, what's happening to our economies from a demand and supply perspective? How would you explain what's going on today? I think at the basic level, it's relatively easy to explain, uh, which is that for health reasons, we basically had to close uh, about one third of the economy uh, nearly overnight. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, in our jargon, a supply shock, which is suddenly basically one third of production had to stop. What we've realized is that stopping one third is, is a very complicated thing because it has a lot of effects. You close one firm and then the firm which is buying from that firm is in trouble or the firm which was selling to that firm is in trouble. And we've seen this over time uh, become uh, bigger and bigger. And uh, why, why do I choose the one firm number? Because now we now have some estimates from parts, some countries which have been on lockdown and then we can look exactly at what happened there. And this one third number seems to be the right number. So we've gone through a phase where, in effect, we just closed one third uh, of, of production. The effect of this was that uh, it was potentially catastrophic uh, for the people who basically don't have funds uh, that they can use to survive while the uh, closing is going on. And same thing for firms. And therefore, what we have seen is a need to help them uh, and we'll come back, I think, to policy a bit later. Uh, but what the government has tried to do is limit the effect 
uh, on the most vulnerable uh, people and firms. So that's what has happened until now. And now we're entering the next phase. And this was needed to control the uh, infection rate and get it down a bit. We're now entering the, the second phase, which is going to last uh, a long time. Uh, and we're entering it too early from a health point of view. I think there's no disagreement that if we could do it for enough, if we could have lockdown or something close to lockdown for another month, it would be very, very useful, much easier to control the infection thereafter. But for various reasons, which we can come back to, uh, that's not what we're doing. And therefore, we're now in the phase in which we have to keep the infection rate down. And this is an incredibly uncertain phase, uh, both because we don't understand still fully the dynamics of the virus. We don't exactly understand the effect of the various parts of the lockdown on the virus. Uh, we don't understand uh, what we can do to basically keep the infection rate down. And so I think the most likely outcome, given that we're really starting too early, is that it's going to be very bumpy that once in a while there are going to be increases in infections. People talk about a second wave. It could be a second wave, could be a third wave. It's going to be a series of bumps in which we may have to go back into lockdown with the same problems again for people who basically don't have the means to survive these lockdowns very long. Uh, how long it's going to last? Uh, probably quite a while. Very difficult to say, but if I had to take a guess, I, I don't think we'll be back to anything like normal before the middle of next year, maybe the end of, uh, of the year. So Olivier, in this, in this second phase, is the economy continuing to contract significantly or is it more flat? How do you, how do you think about that? No, I mean, you can think of what happened is basically we just went down and then we're going hopefully to slowly go back, maybe not exactly to where we were before the crisis, but you can think of going up slowly, but, you know, the pain is still going to be there for a long time. But yes, in principle, from now on, we should expect growth, given that we've fallen so much, growth should be positive, which again, sounds good, but we're starting from a very low level. So there's going to be a lot of pain for a long time. And then if we have lockdowns, uh, then you know, it could be that again, uh, we drop again, we have to close firms again, and we have another decrease in output in production. Uh, that's not, the hope is that we can do it relatively smoothly. But I think the reality is going to go up on average, but uh, we may have uh, new lockdowns, new decreases in production. So Olivier, can you, can you explain to folks what just happened in the oil market, why it was possible to buy to buy oil in the future at a negative <laughs> price? I'm not sure actually anybody bought it at that <laughs> price, but I mean, you, you, it, it's easy to understand what happens to, uh, to, to the price of oil when there's a decrease in demand, which is supply is very inelastic and suddenly there's more oil than people and firms can use. And it, you, know, you start storing it in various places, you end up storing it in boats and ships and wherever you can. But at some stage, there's just too much. And the thing you want is just to get rid of it. And so for a very brief period, the price went negative. That's anecdotal. What's important is that the price is very low and is going to remain very low, partly because of an enormous decrease in demand, but also because of the incredibly stupid war between the Saudis and the Russians, which has increased supply at the time at which you know, there was a need for reducing supply, not increasing supply. 
So Olivier, for a very long time, low oil prices were good for the American economy. And now all of a sudden, low oil prices are not good for the American economy. What what changed? Well, first, I mean, I don't think they are catastrophic because indeed, you know, consumers have more purchasing power. That's still good. But the fact is that now we produce much more oil than, than we did in the past. And we're basically self-sufficient in oil. In the old days, we would buy the oil from the OPEC, from the other countries. And therefore, when it was cheaper, it was all good. Now we produce a lot of it. Uh, through fracking, and the, the effect is that that sector is uh, being killed. So now it's not as good a thing for uh, for, for for American uh, producers. It's still a good thing for American consumers. So this 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 fight between the Saudis and the Russians. What what do you think motivated both of them? I. I I have a hard time. You would you would know these things better than I, Michael, because I think it's outside of the domain of, of economics. Uh, the sense is that they wanted to get rid of, uh, of American producers, which they have done. They also have shot themselves in the foot. Uh, Russia is a rather diversified economy and can take the hit not easily. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a much harder time uh, taking the hit. So it, from where I stand, I think they shot themselves in the foot. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for for several years, um, trying to build a better relationship with the Saudis, he was getting as close to them as he possibly could. He was trying to to garner influence there at our expense, and and boy, did he just shoot himself in the foot from that perspective as well. But the, the point about oil prices is that this is very much a separate development, and what's much more important, I think, is uh, the decreasing commodity prices, which is happening just because there is less demand in the world. And that affects commodity producers, which are typically, you know, low low income countries. That's a big issue. That's very much related to the virus. The oil price story is kind of a more complicated one and a less central one, maybe. Yeah. So so that's exactly where I wanted to go next. I wanted to to ask you about both emerging markets and what's happening in emerging markets and then what's happening in lower income economies. If you could break that out, that would be fantastic. I'm not sure I'm going to break it up, although, you know, you have to really to go country by country. But it's clear that together uh, they are uh, in a much worse situation than advanced economies because they have the problem of the virus. It looks as if it's not as bad for reasons I'm not sure we fully understand. Uh, The dynamics of it seem to be less bad in some uh, African countries than they are, say, in advanced economies. But still, they have to deal with the virus. They clearly have a health system which is utterly unable uh, to deal with it. I assume that you discussed it in your previous uh, podcast. Uh, And then uh, on top of this, they have economic shocks that uh, more advanced economies don't have, which is they rely much more on exports as a growth strategy, uh, which is a very smart strategy to have, except when exports just fall, which is what is happening. They rely on remittances, and remittances have dropped uh, a whole lot. They rely on commodity prices, uh, and again, these have fallen a whole lot. Uh, and uh, in addition to this, uh, they are suffering, and that's the main issue in the short run, uh, from enormous capital outflows. And so uh, at the time at which they need to borrow, uh, you know, their fiscal policy uh, requires them to run deficits. Uh, the capital that had gone in is going out, and the numbers are absolutely staggering there. So it's clear that they have 
in effect, an impossible situation. Again, I'm talking in general, but that's true of so many of them that generalizing is not is not uh, is not unacceptable in this case. And so, what's going to happen there is that they are going to get some help, but the size of the help is uh, of the help which is needed is so far beyond, I think, what will come that we'll see what we call debt restructuring or debt default, and they'll be unable uh, to basically uh, you know, service the debt that they have. They'll have a hard time getting more. And so uh, I expect things to be to be extremely bad. Again, varying from country to country, but extremely bad is the average. And how will, how will that debt restructuring and possible debt defaults play back in the developed economies? That's a very interesting point. And I think, interestingly, I think that uh, policymakers haven't focused on this. But yeah, right. I mean, the creditors, now the creditors are half, you know, roughly half official, in which case, uh, you know, this will lead to, uh, to problems on the fiscal side that's probably tractable. But half of them are private, and some of them will go belly up, almost surely. And so, although I, I don't think that's going to create a financial crisis such as what we saw in uh, you know, 2008-9, uh, it is going to be an issue. It's, it's coming down, down the line, not right now, uh, but I'm quite sure it's going to come up as, a, as an increasing issue uh, over the next few months. And then, Olivia, maybe, maybe one final question before we move to the policy response. You've looked at a lot of economic history um, in your career, and I'm just wondering if you've ever seen anything like this from the perspective of the speed of the decline, the depth of the decline, and the breadth of the decline. Is this unprecedented from your perspective, even even throwing the Great Depression in there? I think it's completely unprecedented. I mean, again, what you had is an overnight forced decrease in production of, uh, of 35%. <laughs> That's you know, I maybe have to. I cannot think of any episode in history going back centuries or millennia, in which uh, something happened at that speed on that on that uh, magnitude. I mean, you clearly have had periods in history when output would decrease by a whole lot. And I'm sure during the Black Plague and and, and times like that, but nothing which happened, you know, within a, a few weeks. Uh, so no, this is completely unprecedented. Okay, policy response. So can you explain to folks what the governments of developed economies have done from an economic policy perspective? Right. So let's start with uh, with fiscal policy, right? I mean, there are basically two main tools, fiscal and, and monetary policy. So fiscal policy, I mean, the first reaction was to spend as much as possible on on health in order to basically give whatever, you know, hospitals needed and so on and so on. But the you know, fiscal policy can only do so much. I mean, in the end, you need the machines, you need the people, and we could increase the machines a bit and the people a bit, but not much. Uh, from that point of view, now the issue on the, on the health front is to, uh, you know, do everything we can uh, to get uh, tests earlier, to get vaccines earlier, to get drugs which work earlier. And what's interesting here is that it could be done on a, on a very large scale if the governments were willing to do it. And it would represent numbers which are enormous, uh, potentially tens of billions, maybe even hundreds of billions. But at the macro scale, uh, these are very small numbers. So there, 
what the governments should be in the business of doing and are not really doing right is basically thinking of kind of moonshots or you know going to Mars or things like this, mm. and you know mm. basically being will, willing to spend what sounds like enormous amounts of money in order to get the test to be to come um, online a bit faster and so on. That's mm. one. From a macro point of view, that's not peanuts. It's maybe one percent of GDP, not not enormous numbers by macro standards. The second one, which is where the money has been spent has been given that you had this decrease in production of, you know, again, about one third, uh, then, you know, people, there was no way to produce more than that. That's a, that, that was a hard constraint. But the effect on various people and various firms was very different. And there was a number of people and a number of firms which basically don't have the means to go for uh, without revenues for a few months or more. And so this is what I call disaster relief. And that's what has been the aim of fiscal policy. So trying to basically make sure that people who lost their job or didn't have anything to do will get enough to live on, that firms which were uh, which didn't have a whole lot of liquidity could actually survive for a few months. And the governments in various places of the world have put in place various programs, which is unemployment benefits, subsidies to firms, loans to firms, and so on. And that has represented a very large amount of money. The issue there is that it needed to be done very quickly. And, and, you know, we hear this on the news. I mean, it's not good if somebody who is unemployed receives the first check, uh, you know, three months later. It's too late. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there, was, there was a trade-off between speed and targeting, if you want. Uh, you know, you would want to give the money to the people and the firms which really needed it. Uh, but that would have taken probably months, and that mm. was just uh, uh, out of out of the question. So, these programs in general have been extremely messy and rather inefficient in the sense that, and we and we hear this again on the radio every day, uh, which is that some people that really need the money are not getting it, and some people and some firms which really don't need the money are getting it, and I think that was inevitable. Uh, it was done badly everywhere, uh, but it was probably done more badly in the US than in Europe. There was, there was an interesting strategy uh, in Europe, which is to, when the firms had to close or could not operate because there was no demand, to actually keep the workers employed by the firms, technically on unemployment, but still employed by the firms, the firms paying them and the state paying the firms in order to, for them to be able to pay the workers. So the workers have stayed very close to the firms. The firms knew who was working for them, so they could give the money to the right people. Where in the US, we've gone to a system in which people were laid off, unemployment uh, offices were in charge, and suddenly they were you know, faced with uh, 10 times, 100 times what they usually do, and they could not do it, and they had done a bad job. Same thing with the loans uh, to... Um, to small and, and, and medium-sized uh, firms in the U.S., where we've asked the, uh, the SBA, the bureau in charge of this, to do it, and it's completely unable to, uh, to do the work. So I think it has been done in a messier way in the U.S. than in Europe. But in general, the intent has been the right one, which is just let's make sure that you know, people are not going to die and firms are not going to go bankrupt. Uh, that's where most of the money has been spent. 
So this is for fiscal policy. And one remark on this is I think the reason why there's so much pressure in the U.S. to reopen comes partly from the fact that the programs haven't worked as well as one could hope for. And therefore, mm. many people are not getting checks. And they probably know that there's a risk in going back to work and so on. But to them, it's more important than not having the funds. So I think there's some interaction here which explains some of the politics of what we're seeing uh, in the U.S. at this point. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Olivier Blanchard. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One more question on fiscal policy before we move to monetary policy. This, this difference between the U.S. and Europe What's at the root of it, do you think? Is it, it, is it cultural? Is it a different approach to labor markets um, over a long period of time? Is it good policymaking versus bad policymaking? How do you think about that fundamental difference? I think the fundamental difference is, is obvious. It's a stronger state, stronger role of the state. Uh, the state is uh, much bigger and uh, in many ways uh, better organized uh, in Europe than it is in the U.S. I mean, the U.S., Philosophy has been, you know, the, the private sector is the driver. Uh, the state has been underfunded at m- many margins. The state is, uh, the administrative part of the state is often weak. Uh, Europe is stronger in that way, but that reflects mm. the fundamental choice between, you know, the private sector and the public sector, which is different on both sides of the Atlantic. Okay, monetary policy. So monetary policy you know, in a standard recession in the past, monetary policy would play an important role. But when we got into the, the crisis, monetary policy had already done a lot. And in many countries, the interest rate, I mean, in Europe, for example, the interest rate was already at zero, right? In the US, it was a bit higher, coming back from zero a few years earlier, but it was very low. So in terms of standard monetary policy, which is when the economy slows down, you decrease the interest rate to kind of push demand, uh, there was just not a whole lot of room to play. Uh, they have done, central banks have done what they could, but that was limited in what they could actually do. Uh, where monetary policy has been extremely good, extremely aggressive, is in dealing with what I would call the, the dislocations of financial markets. When, when you have a shock like this, all the decisions have to be, I mean, everything is on the table in terms of how investors are going to behave. So they take money out of some markets because they need it somewhere else. And so you get these enormous dislocations. If there is no uh, central bank intervention, you see crazy prices up, down, the kind of things that we saw for oil, for example, where you know there's mm. no central bank involved. Uh, and then suddenly some price goes completely crazy and then some firm goes bankrupt because there was no way to think about what would happen in that case. So what the central banks have done is basically be on the buying or the selling side of a market, but typically on the buying side. When investors would go out of a market, uh, they would basically go in to try to 
no, no, smooth things, make the market work better. Uh, and that has played a very important role. And they have been extremely aggressive in doing so. So we could have had a financial crisis due to liquidity constraints that some of the financial institutions needed money and had to do crazy stuff and couldn't get the money. Uh, we've avoided this. Now, you know, later on, there's still the issue that we briefly discussed if there is debt restructuring, for example, in emerging markets, or if the U.S. economy continues, you know, there are bad shocks again, then we may have uh, potential uh, problems of solvency rather than liquidity. But for the moment, the central banks have done an, an outstanding job, I would say. So in terms of policy going forward, you know, there's a lot of talk about this so-called trade-off. I guess I put quotes around it. Uh, so-called trade-off between the economy and health. How do you how do you think about that? So I think there are actually two debates. One is uh, is past, uh, and I think the answer is clear. Which is, did it make sense to actually use the strategy we used to have a lockdown rather than to go for what is known as herd immunity, which is letting the virus just do its job and then be done with it? I think there is no question that it made sense to have uh, a lockdown and try to uh, get the virus under control before moving to the next phase. A few countries which vaguely thought about it changed their mind very quickly. In the UK, they thought about it. They went this way for a few weeks and then realized it was going to be catastrophic. So I think that, that issue is, is past. And there is no question that there was a need for a lockdown. Now, I think the more interesting issue is now which is uh, we're on lockdown uh, in many places in the world. And at what rate can we, can we relax? Can we basically allow economic activity while keeping the infection rate uh, under, under control? And I think that's a, that's a much more relevant question. It's not a zero one question. You know, you do it or you don't. It's how you do it and how closely. And, uh, we basically, and the, the truth is nobody knows exactly uh, what the trade-off is. Uh, it depends on a lot of factors that we still don't know, so we'll basically have to try. And what's happening in the world is that every country, every state in the U.S. is trying its own way. Uh, my uh, suspicion is that some are going to go too fast, probably in the U.S. in particular. Uh, but we're just all going to learn, and there are going to be adjustments along the way, and probably... Um, what I've called bumps, but could be worse, which is uh, increasing the infection rate, which force a new lockdown here and there. The fact that everybody is going at it in different ways is going to create tensions. Uh, you know, we're seeing it between states in the US, we're seeing it in Europe uh, with the closing of borders. Um, states which are doing better are going to be reluctant to allow people from other states to come in and so on. Uh, but this, again, this is something that, you know, we have never uh, experienced in any way, uh, shape or form, and we'll just have to play it slowly. One big issue politically is how governments are going to keep their credibility if they have to change the way they are going at it along the way. Uh, I think transparency explaining that it is really a very different thing to do, a very difficult thing to do, uh, is the way to go. But I suspect there'll be, again, political implications there. Yes, yes. So let's let's shift again to the recovery. And I th my sense, Olivier, is there's this idea out there that you can just kind of flip the switch on an economy. Uh, how do you think about that? I mean, once once we're ready to for people to go back to work, 
um, how quickly would things go back to normal? Um, and the longer we're the longer we're on lockdown, and the longer the economy is significantly below its potential, how will that affect the eventual recovery? So I think you can uh, flick the switch off very easily, and that's what we did. Uh, flicking it on is is much 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 harder, and that's basically what we'll just have to we'll just have to see. I think we're just going to to see what happens. Uh, you, you were asking me about the, the longer run implications. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the, the issue which is going to start dominating the, the discussion uh, very soon is the level of debt, uh, which is that at this stage, the programs we've had uh, imply that you know, deficits of about 10% of GDP or more uh, so the ratio of debt to GDP, given the GDP has gone down and deficits have gone up, is going, you know, debt to GDP ratios, uh, which is what we economists look at, are going to increase by 20, maybe 25% of GDP. If we have, again, bumps and we have to have a new lockdown, we'll need new programs. And so debt to GDP could increase even more than that. And you can see how politicians are going to say, well, no, this is too high, uh, right. and that's going to create uh, worries. So where do I stand on this? I, I think, again, we are lucky in a way that we entered the crisis with extremely low interest rates. Uh, now they are, you know, they are basically at zero, which means that the debt service, how much you have to pay on debt when the interest rate is zero, is very small. So you can actually carry a whole lot of debt if you don't have to basically uh, pay interest on it. Um, are interest rates going to remain very low for a long time, which would make things easier? My best guess is yes. All the reasons why they were low before are still there. And you're going to see, I think, very low interest rates for a very long time. So I think that we can probably sustain the levels of debt that uh, we're going to have. But it's not an absolute certainty. And in this case, what we economists call multiple equilibria, which is that it could be that debt is sustainable if interest rate is zero, but if investors start being worried, they will not want to lend at zero. They'll want basically to have a risk premium. They'll be ready to lend at a much higher rate. And this by itself will increase the debt service, and this will by itself create the crisis that the investors were worried about. So we're going to be in a world in which I think investors are going to be a bit hedgy. Uh, and there is the risk that, uh, you know, somehow the interest rate goes up a lot and then there's a debt crisis. I think for advanced economies, the central banks will be able to intervene and make sure it doesn't happen. But again, for emerging markets, developing economies, that will be an issue. So this is one more reason to think that there'll be debt default in both countries. So Olivier, also from a long-term perspective, do you foresee winners and losers from the perspective of different countries, different kinds of countries, different types of firms, large firms versus small firms? Are there, are, are there long-term effects that we should expect there? I think so. Uh, I mean, the easiest thing to think about is sectors, right? It, it's very clear that uh, some sectors are going to suffer even in the long run. I think airlines is an example. I think, you know, this is anecdotal, but we have all learned how to use Zoom and such things and found that it was a much more convenient way of doing it than taking planes. 
so this is it's clear that airlines are going to have a tough time it's clear therefore it's clear therefore that uh, producers of uh, of of of, of uh, planes are going to have a hard time it's clear that restaurants some of the small restaurants are not going to survive so it's easy to do that in terms of countries i think it, it's it's harder it's clear that the us is not going to come out on top in terms of ability to to do things right it's going to look bad uh, i don't know how important it is but symbolically i think that the us will not come out of this crisis looking very good um, what else i think there's so it's something which had happened starting to started to happen before the crisis maybe for the last uh, two or three years which was what i would call deglobalization um, mm. there was a backlash against trade uh, and and partly justified backlash against trade in the sense that economists had said well trade is good well, but they had not focused on the fact that it's good in general and it can be very bad for some people who lose their jobs so there was already a backlash against trade uh, with the trade wars uh, uh, triggered largely by the uh, current administration. Uh, there was a worry that you were well aware of about security uh, in, in, in uh, supply chains, which is you know, the notion that every fridge that we imported from China could actually listen to what we did, which was going to lead again, I think, to less, uh, less trade, less, smaller supply chains. I think this one is going to reinforce that. Uh, and my guess is that uh, we're going to see a contraction of trade. We're going to see shorter supply chains, uh, probably supply chains closer to home. For example, mm. European firms using Eastern Europe rather than Vietnam. I think it's going to be a big issue for countries like Vietnam, for example, which have bet their growth on exports being part of supply chains. Uh, I think there's, you know, all firms are going to reconsider how they operate in China, and unless they have access to the domestic market, maybe they are there to sell there. Uh, mm. But if they are there to save on costs, I think they are going to think twice. So we're going to see all these things. Now, is this kind of a, a game changer at an even higher level? I cannot tell. Uh, you know, we're all going to be affected by this crisis in various ways. But being specific about what this implies, I cannot go beyond what I've just guessed. Yeah. So Olivia, you've been, you've been fantastic with your time. Let me just ask you one more question. And that is, if you were, if you were still at the IMF, if you were in your old job, what would you be doing every day? What would you be focused on? I'd be focused on trying to get as much money uh, for emerging and developing economies as I can. Uh, because again, the amounts uh, that are needed are staggering and although the IMF you know can mobilize a lot of funds and others can as well it's still only a fraction of what's needed so I would concentrate very much on what can be done to basically increase the funds which are available for those countries and where 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 would you find that kind of money oh, by naming and shaming um, you know, countries, rich countries have their problems at home, that's for sure, but they can basically give what is for them limited amounts of money and is for African countries a whole lot of money. Uh, right. And we can go into specifics, but there are various ways in which this can be done. Yeah. Olivier, thank you so much for joining it's us. Been a pleasure. Um, this, is, this has been a real education for me, and um, I'm sure it will be for my listeners. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. That was Olivier Blanchard. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.